this morning, getting right back into the Gospel of Mark. As I've mentioned, we plan to end this series in the Gospel of Mark around or on Easter Sunday, actually. We'll probably have one more message, actually, after that uh, to kind of finish up the end of Mark. But uh, we're going to be this morning in Mark chapter 14. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We'll get to that here in just a moment. Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 12 to 6 today. Uh, you'll notice that the next number of sermons all kind of have one word titles. As I've been doing some studying of Mark chapter 14 and looking at how it is that we can go about uh, going through this long chapter. If you look at Mark chapter 14, it's got 72 verses. So we're going to spend a little bit of time here in Mark chapter 14. Uh, and and you notice that the one word title for the message today is Preparing. And so uh, we're going to look at preparing. Uh, we're going to see Jesus making some very deliberate preparations to highlight the reality and the significance of his death. And, and, and so Jesus is, in this passage, preparing his disciples for his death. And we're going to look at preparing for death even generally. So kind of a, kind of a heavy subject today. Um, when you're young, of course, you don't think a lot about this. Uh, a lot of times people say young people always think they're invincible, right? And so, so maybe some of you still in this age category where you're young and you don't think very often about death. Uh, and so, so you're, you're invincible. You do whatever you want to do. If you're going to judge whether or not you're going to do an activity, the way that you judge whether or not you do that activity is by asking yourself the question, will it be fun? And if it'll be fun... You go ahead and do it. You can eat whatever you want to eat whenever you want to eat it. You don't have to think much about that when you're young. And then you get a little older, right? And, and I'm certainly not old, but I'm kind of in that category of getting a little bit older, realize that I'm not invincible anymore, so I can't really eat whatever I want whenever I want quite anymore. I still can do that quite a bit. Uh, but, but also, like, if I'm thinking about an activity and I want to judge whether or not I want to participate in an activity, I don't just ask the question anymore, just will it be fun? I have to also ask the question, how bad will it hurt, right? Because, because I can't quite, there's stuff I could do that used to not hurt. Now if I do it, it's going to hurt, right? And then you get to even beyond where I'm at, and, and there, there's totally different questions. Maybe, maybe you can't eat whatever you want whenever you want it, and you're just thankful that you can eat at all, right? And maybe, maybe the question that you ask when you're judging whether or not to do an activity is not will it be fun, not will it hurt. It's like, is it even physically possible for me to do this anymore? Like, can I even pull this off? Like, that looks like fun, it, but, but I can't even do it, right? And so, so these different stages, and as you get to an older stage, a lot of times it doesn't happen until then, that as you start to see those kind of things happen in life, that you actually start to think a lot about dying. And wondering whether or not, what, what kind of steps do I need to do to prepare for dying? As part of that process, some preparations are made. Now, I've been in this, uh, this class for the last, since September uh, called the LIFE course. So it stands for Leadership Iowa Falls Experience. And so I've had a lot of great experiences just interacting with people in the community and being in this class. And so we kind of get to learn a whole lot of different things. So a couple of weeks ago, maybe some of you saw some pictures on Facebook or something, we were, uh, we were at the state capitol, and so I got to meet with the governor a couple of weeks ago. And so a lot of experiences that I wouldn't get to have just on my own as being a part of this leadership class here in Iowa Falls. Now, this past week on Thursday, 
the focus of the class was extended living. And so we started out the day hearing a bit from an attorney about estate planning. Stuff that, again, when you're young, you might not think about that a whole lot. Um, but as you get older and older, you start to think about that kind of thing. And so so we got to hear a little bit about that. Um, as some people get, and then we also, throughout the day, then we went to uh, visit various nursing homes in town. We went to visit uh, a funeral home here in town. I had somebody come from hospice and, and talk with us. And again, uh, this class being a mainly class with younger people, and it's stuff that a lot of us hadn't really spent a lot of time uh, thinking about. Now, in my role as pastor, I've maybe dealt with some more of those things than some of the other people in the class had. But it happens that at some point in your life, maybe when you're younger, but probably when you're older, you will start to do some things that, that, that prepare you for death. Maybe you'll meet with a funeral director and, and fill out a form for a prearrangement of a funeral. Maybe you'll meet with a pastor and even talk with them about what kind of aspects and components you want to be a part of your funeral or memorial of different ways that we go about in our culture preparing for death. And here in Mark's gospel, ever since Mark chapter 8, Jesus has been trying to prepare his disciples for his death. So by the time we get to Mark chapter 14, we're actually just hours away from Jesus' death. And what we're not going to see happen in Mark 14, we don't see Jesus scrambling to figure out some kind of escape plan. Instead, what we're going to see very clearly here in Mark chapter 14 is we're going to see Jesus make some very deliberate preparations to highlight the reality and the significance of his impending death. That's what we're going to see here in Mark chapter 14 today. Now, just just kind of a warning that the, the elements of this story from this point on, as we go through the rest of the gospel of Mark and we hear of the denial, the betrayal of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. If you've been in the church for some time, these things seem very familiar. And the danger with familiar kinds of things is they can kind of just go in one ear and out the other. We don't want that to happen today because I want us to make sure that as we go through this, we feel the tension. Anytime you're hearing a story, a true story, you want to be able to put yourself there and kind of feel the drama and feel the tension. And so just a reminder of some of the tension that we see here so far in the Gospel of Mark. Remember, as in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus show incredible authority, right? And it seems to be recognized by pretty much everybody. Jesus is a man with great authority in the Gospel of Mark. But at the same time, there's this tension because there is a significant threat to his authority because he seems to be a threat to people that are are in authority, right? So we see see and we feel that tension as we get to Mark 14. He's also been revealed as the Christ. He's the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One. He's the one that comes to rescue God's people. But we also hear now there's a plot for him to be put to death. So there's that tension. We also see him earlier in Mark chapter 11. Now, this is only a few days before this. But in Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he is hailed as a king. Right? It's like people people love Jesus. They want to worship him. They see him as a king and as a rescuer. But now we see this tension. These people are also now plotting and planning for his death. But what we're going to notice as we look at Mark 14 is that Jesus is still in control. Stuff is not at all spun out of control. Jesus is being very deliberate in Mark 14. 
He's doing, he's, he's doing everything on purpose. He's dying. He's going to die. But he's even going to do that on purpose. And as he prepares for his death, he's also very deliberately preparing his disciples and by extension us to look at and, and understand the, the significance of his death. And so that's what we're going to do today. So Mark chapter 14, we're going to be starting in verse 12. If you're able to, would you stand as we read God's word this morning? Mark 14, starting in verse 12, going through verse 26. This is God's word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and the man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You can be seated. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I I pray. Again, uh, as we pray each week, that your Holy Spirit would work through your word to accomplish what needs to be accomplished amongst us this morning. That we would be reminded of the reality and the significance of Jesus' death. If we don't get that, then we truly are not prepared to die ourselves. So, So God, be at work in this place this morning. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark 14, Uh, we're going to look first at Jesus preparing to dine. He's preparing to eat a meal with his disciples. We see that in verses 12 to 16. Just a note about the setting. Remember that Jesus and his disciples have been staying in Bethany. So they're staying, Bethany is just a town just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And so they're staying there, and Jesus tells his disciples, he tells his disciples, it's Thursday, okay? So it's Thursday, and they're about ready to eat the meal. And it's important that they eat this Passover meal in Jerusalem. Okay? You might wonder why. Okay, so they're doing all this stuff in Bethany. They're staying in Bethany, but Jesus says, go into the city. He wants them to go into Jerusalem. It was clear from the Old Testament that that is where the Passover meal was supposed to be eaten. So if you can understand kind of the setting of Jerusalem at this time, the Passover time is a time when people would come from all over the place to eat the Passover meal in Jerusalem. 
So every house is filled. And if there's any extra space anywhere, it's taken up with people that are eating the Passover meal. So Jesus is not doing an abnormal thing at this time in this culture when he asks his disciples, go into Jerusalem and get a meal ready for us so that we can have the Passover together. If you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 16, a lot of instruction in the Old Testament about how they did the Passover meal. And Deuteronomy chapter 16 gives us a little hint as to why they had to go into Jerusalem. Here's what it says. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but only at the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time that you came out of Egypt. Okay? So Jesus being very deliberate, being obedient to the Old Testament, saying we're going to eat the Passover meal. This is something that Jewish people have been doing for centuries. And now Jesus is saying, we're going to do that again. And so what he does is he sends two of his disciples. He sends two disciples into the city to make preparations. This isn't the first time we saw this. If you might remember in in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus was about to enter the city on Palm Sunday, he sent two disciples ahead to get things prepared. Now he's doing that again a few days later. Go into the city and get this Passover meal ready for us. And so they go in to do that. And Jesus, did you notice how specific he gets with the instructions? He gives them some very specific instructions. In verse 12, he tells them, you're going to find a man. Like, well, yeah, there's lots of men in the city. Now, most men didn't carry water. That was usually the job of a woman in the city. And so it would be unique probably to find a man who is carrying water. And so Jesus says there's going to be a man, and he's going to be carrying water. What are you supposed to do? Jesus says, follow him. Find the man carrying water and follow him. Jesus even gives very specific, deliberate instructions on here's what you're supposed to say. Here's what he says. The teacher is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. So the disciples are even given a strip. Here's what you say when you see the man carrying the water. You follow him. You say this to him. And Jesus even tells them, here's what that man will say to you. Right? He's going to show you a large upper room that's furnished and ready. Uh, Just by the way, it's kind of interesting as I was studying this. Remember a couple of weeks ago in our prayer series, we were in Acts chapter 12. And in Acts chapter 12, when the believers were gathered together in a house um, in Jerusalem, they were gathered together to pray for Peter because remember he was in prison. And remember he showed up at the house and they didn't even believe that it was him and all of that stuff. That that person's house was Mark's mother's house. and, and there's a lot of speculation um, that, that this would have been maybe the same house here uh, back in. So, so um, in, in Acts chapter 12, that's, the, that's for sure where, where the church seems to be gathered. Um, that might be the same place that Jesus is meeting here at the Last Supper, uh, the Passover meal with his disciples. Doesn't really matter, I guess. I uh, just thought it was interesting. But we get to verse 16. And look at verse 16. Here's what it says. And the disciples set out went to the city, and guess what? They found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. We're we're probably not surprised anymore by this point in the Gospel of Mark that that Jesus had this all perfectly planned out. Um, It was set, just as Jesus said, that's how it worked out. There was a man carrying water. They followed him. They said this to him. They used their strip. This man said, let me show you the room. It was furnished and ready. So they go up. They get everything ready to go. Again, we see here Jesus acting with great deliberation. He's doing everything 
on purpose. And then we don't see that end. Jesus continues to do everything on purpose. They're going to eat a meal together, but here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus taking this meal. The Passover meal, for a Jewish person, the Passover meal would have had great significance. But Jesus is going to take this meal with great significance, and he's going to give it even greater significance. That's what we're going to see here in a little bit. Little bit. It's all part of his process of preparing them for the reality and the significance of his death. And so let's look at verses 17 to 26. First of all, we see Jesus preparing to die because he's going to be betrayed by a man. And he knows it. You ever had something come up while you're eating a meal? Maybe you're eating a family meal, you're all gathered around the table, and somebody says something totally unexpected. Kind of like, whew, where did that come from? Right? And so, so maybe your fork is halfway to your mouth and you just stop with it there. Everybody starts like, looking around at each other, like, did you just hear that, right? I think that's probably what it was like as they're eating here, The pass- probably not with forks, um, but they're eating the Passover meal together, which is a long, drawn-out meal. It's not just like a, let's sit down for a half hour and, and get it done. There, there's a lot of parts to the Passover meal. So they're together for a long period of time, and at some point during that meal, they would have been shocked to hear what Jesus said here in verses 17 to 21. Here's what he says. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. I think they would have just stopped. Whatever they were doing, what? Where did that come from? Jesus just out of the blue saying, One of you, one of the twelve, one of you who's eating with me right now, you're going to betray me would have been shocking to them and it says in verse 19 they began to be sorrowful they're sad and they started to say to him one after another they're taking turns and they're asking him the question is it i it's obviously not very clear to them who it might be now those of us who have read the gospel of mark we know because the last part of our last message verses 10 to 11 we were told that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve leaders, and had a plan for how they were going to betray Jesus, right? Started looking for a way to do that. So we know, we know, as readers of the Gospel of Mark, we know who it is. It's Judas Iscariot. But the disciples who had been spending three years together, you think they might have a clue at this point. Oh, I know. It's got to be so. Like, did you, have you seen the way that he's, they don't know. And they lack the confidence in their own trust in Jesus, in their own... I mean, remember, last week we saw their response to this lady who was sacrificially worshiping Jesus. Their response was kind of half-hearted, kind of like this, I don't know if he's really worth that. I mean, you could have done something better, right? And so here they are. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And one by one, they're sad, and they're asking the question, is it, is it I? Am I the one? They didn't know. They didn't know who it was going to be, and they wondered if maybe it was going to be them. Is it I? And then Jesus said, no, it is. it's one of the twelve. He says that in verse 21, who is dipping bread into the dish with me. I always thought, like when I, when I pictured this, I always thought, well, that means somebody at that moment was dipping bread into the dish, and everybody's like, oh, that's who it is. It doesn't really say that. The idea of dipping bread, of, of breaking bread together, that's just the idea of fellowship. 
Uh, so it's a, sign, it's a sign of great, deep fellowship. And so Jesus is just saying it's one of the 12 who's dipping. The, it's not, not that there was one guy at that moment dipping the bread. They were all, that's part of the Passover meal, is dipping bread into a dish. And so it was one of those. That's all he's saying, really, is that it's one of the 12 here. He wasn't specifying yet which one it was. It doesn't seem, at least according to Mark. But then we get to verse 21. And I want you to notice, verse 21, we like to have this argument amongst Christians about God's sovereignty and human free will and responsibility. We like to have, we like to have that argument. I don't know why, but we like to have that argument when it seems very clear in Scripture that both of those things are true. And this is one of the spots that we see in Scripture. Both of these things are definitely true. Is God sovereign? Yes. Do humans have real choices that have real consequences? Yes. Okay, we see that in verse 21. Look at this. Verse 21 says this. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Okay, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and it's not a surprise to Jesus. Because Jesus says, that's remember what Jesus calls himself in Mark's gospel, usually the Son of Man. He says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This was planned. This was God's plan from before the foundation of the world that he would send his one and only Son to die. Jesus knew that he was born to die. He knew that this time was coming. This is God's plan. So he says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to him, or woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So do we see that God has a very sovereign plan? Yeah. And do we see that humans have real choices that have real consequences in the real world? Yeah. That one's true, too. They're both, they're both true, and we see it right here in, in one verse, right? That the Son of Man, he's going to die. This is what he came for, and there's going to be a man named Judas who is going to play an integral role in that, and he is going to be responsible for his sinful choice. Okay? All right. Now we get to verses 22 to 26. He's going to be betrayed by a man, and he's going to be dying for many. Verses 22 to 26. They continue on with the meal. Remember, like I said, this is a meal with multiple phases, a meal that would have taken some time to eat. And it was a meal, like I said also, that had great significance. Okay? For, for Jewish people who would gather together to eat the Passover meal, the meal was filled with great significance. Everything that they did in the meal was done on purpose. But Jesus was about to give it even greater significance. You want to know how important the Passover was in the life of a Jewish person? You can look through the Old Testament. I'm just reading through the Old Testament right now, and I keep coming up. It talks about the Passover all over the place. You hear about the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. You hear about it again in Leviticus chapter 23, again in Numbers chapter 9, again in Deuteronomy chapter 16. There's lots of instruction in the Old Testament about how they do the Passover and why it's so significant. The Passover was to be done at the same time every year. And again, remember that the Passover was done so that God's people would remember how it was that God delivered them from Egypt. That a lamb had to be sacrificed and the blood of that lamb would be spread on the doorpost. And that was how God would pass over them and save them in the midst of his judgment on Egypt. And that would be their way of being saved and delivered from Egypt, right? So that's what they're remembering in the Passover. But Jesus now is about to take this meal 
new and even more significant meaning already had. Jesus had come to be the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who was about to be sacrificed. The next day, He was going to be sacrificed. And He was, through His sacrifice, initiating a new covenant in His blood. So that's what we see Jesus preparing for here. So let's look at this closely. Verse 22. And as they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it, and He gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. They'd always eaten the bread. The bread was a part of the Passover meal. But now Jesus takes it and he says, as he takes it, breaks it, blesses it, gives thanks for it, distributes it, he says, take, this is my body. Now just a quick note, there are some churches that will teach that, that as we do communion, that, that the, the bread actually becomes the body of Christ in some way. The cup actually becomes the, the blood of Christ. And they say, well, we're just taking Scripture literally. Jesus says, this is my body. And we want to take Scripture literally, um, but not when it wasn't intended to be taken literally. And so Jesus also says other things like, I am the gate, I am the door. And we don't believe that Jesus is really a door, right? Um, he, he's saying that, and so, so he's saying, I am like a door, right? That, that, and, and Jesus is saying, this is this bread here is still bread, but this bread is a representative or a symbol of my body. Okay, so, so when we take the bread, we don't believe that the bread is the body of Christ. We believe that the bread is a symbol of the body of Christ. And so Jesus takes this and he says, this is my body. And he distributes it to the disciples. Then we get to verses 23 and 24. After he distributes, after they do that with the bread, sometime later probably in the meal, takes a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they'd all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Listen to that language. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Okay, so Jesus gives them the cup. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, it's hard for us, living in our culture, to understand the significance of what he's saying there. But if you are a Jewish person, this would remind you, probably immediately, of Exodus chapter 24. So go ahead and turn there really quickly. Exodus chapter 24. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. So way back towards the beginning. Exodus chapter 24. I want to look at something. This is, this is, this is God making a covenant with His people. This is the people kind of responding to that. In Exodus chapter 24. Interesting, look at Exodus 24, verse 3. It says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all his rules. And all of the people, listen to this. So, so Moses receives from God, God's law, and he brings it to the people. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Oh, they're confident, aren't they? God's law comes to them, and their response is, yeah, we can do that, right? Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant, there's that word, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. They hear, they, they hear God's law, God's perfect law that re- reflects God's perfect character. They say, yep, sign us up for that. We can, we can do that. We can do that. Then look at verse 8. 
to hear more about these same words. Verse 8 says, And Moses took the blood and sacrificed an animal and filled a basin with blood. And Mo- Imagine this, how messy this is. Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. Right? Takes the blood and throws it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Under the old covenant, we have God's law. We have sacrifice of, of blood. But this blood is not, not, not poured out for the people, but it is thrown onto the people. And it's thrown onto these people who are looking at the law and saying, yes, we can do that. And we know very quickly thereafter and all throughout human history, God's people have been breaking God's law. Everybody that God's made breaks God's law. And so they were wrong in their assumption that we can do this. We will be obedient. They couldn't. Right? And as we see God's law put in front of us, we hear the Ten Commandments and we understand what was behind it. We, we look and we're like, I can't do that. That has to be our response, right? In the New Covenant, the, the law is written on our hearts so that we know, we know that our sin is sinful, that our sin is offensive to God. We have failed. But here Jesus says in Mark chapter 14, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. That's not going to be sprinkled and thrown on a few people, but instead it is poured out for many. And when he says the word many there, he's echoing, a lot of this is echoing Isaiah chapter 53, and many was often used to refer to the entirety of a group of people. Okay, So, so the many means, means for all, really, here. It doesn't mean just a select few. Jesus would come and he would succeed where Israel failed. Israel looked at God's law and said, I can do that, and they failed. But Jesus comes and he says, I can do that, and he does. Jesus is perfectly obedient. And though he was perfectly obedient and deserved no punishment, he didn't need a sacrifice, but he recognized that all of us needing a sacrifice, he willingly poured out his blood for us. And so he gives them, before he even does this, the night before he does this, he gives them, he gives new significance to this cup that was a part of the Passover meal for centuries. He says, no, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We're given the cup as a reminder that Jesus can pay for all of our sin. And then Jesus says in verse 25, just to kind of finish it out, verse 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is not going to be around for any more of the feasts uh, that, that Jewish people would have had. He's not going to be around for that anymore. So he tells his disciples, listen, we're not doing this again until there's a great feast or a great banquet when the kingdom of God comes. We'll do this again. But I'm not doing this with you on earth anymore. And then finally, verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Remember the hymn book of the Old Testament is the book of Psalms, right? So the hymn book of, of, of the Jewish people would have been the book of Psalms. At this point, it would have been traditional for them to sing Psalms 115 through 118 at the end of the Passover meal. They would have sung Psalms 115 through 118. Interestingly, one of the last phrases in Psalm 118 that they would have sung as they're leaving this is this phrase that we've heard repeated many times in the New Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's part of the song that they're singing as they leave the Passover meal. Psalm 118, 22. Jesus was preparing to die. 
He was going to be rejected. He was going to be betrayed. He was on his way to the cross. And so he is going now to the Mount of Olives. As we look at this passage, we're going to end by, 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 by the greatest application we can of this passage, by coming together around the table. We'll do that in just a moment. But before we get there, partially because I think this passage pushes us to think about that, also because just my experiences this week pushed me to think about that again, I think we have to ask the question, are you prepared to die? Are you prepared to die? Jesus, Jesus knew his time was coming, right? This is what he had come for. He knew that his time was coming. The hour was near. This is what he came to do. This was the Father's plan. And Jesus was completely, freely, and willingly submitting to the Father's plan for him to die. And Jesus was planning this. He's very deliberate. It wasn't just happening to him. We all make plans, right? We all make plans for life. When you're young, you make educational plans. Then you start to make career plans. Maybe do some family planning. You do some financial planning. We do lots of planning. But have we done some preparing, some planning for dying? And there are some ways that people do this. Maybe you have a life insurance policy. Maybe you've met with the funeral director. Maybe you have a plot ready in the cemetery for your body. And that's important stuff to do. I heard of the importance of estate planning, whatever. That's fine. Those are all things that are fine and good to do, to prepare to die in that way. But maybe an even greater question is not, are you prepared to die? But are you prepared for eternal life? Because death is not the end. When our physical body dies and is put in the ground, that is not the end. So maybe a more important question to be asking is, are we prepared for eternal life. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 9. You can turn there if you'd like. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. I want you to hear this. A lot of people don't like to think about death with good with good reason because we've experienced death of people that we love and it hurts. We don't like to think about it, but sometimes we're forced to think about it. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 27 says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here's the truth. Very clear in Scripture. Very clear not just in Scripture, but in human experience. You're going to die. And you're going to die once. And Scripture says that one time you you get one chance to die, and after that comes judgment. We don't know when that time's going to be. You die once, and after that comes judgment. It also tells us very clear that Jesus died once. Jesus died once, and He died to bear our sins. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, it says in Hebrews 9.28, and if you've trusted in Jesus... You long for Him to come again, because that is where we will see the completion of our salvation. But if you've not trusted in Jesus, then you will bear God's just wrath for your sins, and you will experience eternal punishment instead of eternal life. So it is very important that we answer the question, not just are you prepared to die, do you have your papers in order, but is your soul in order? 
have you been made right with God? Not by, not by working really hard and doing a number of things to earn your way, because you can't. But have you been made right with God? Have you been reconciled to God through your faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus died for you. You might be weak in your faith. And thankfully, Jesus didn't sit down at that last supper with these cowardly, fearful disciples, knowing that one of them would betray him and the rest would flee. And he didn't look at them and say, they're not worth dying for. He looked at these these weak in faith, sinful men, people like you and I, people who were maybe ashamed of their sin. They were sad. Is it going to be me? They were wondering. And Jesus looked at them and he didn't say, you're not worth dying for. Jesus willingly went to the cross for people like you and me. And his blood that he poured out is sufficient to cover all of our sins. Earlier we sang one kind of song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Maybe that was a a less familiar version to some of you, but many of you know the more familiar version of that song. And in that song it says this, Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing. You've got, you've got a sin problem. Everybody's got a sin problem. And there's nothing that can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. That's great if you've done some good things. But it's not good enough. You're not going to atone for your sin by doing good things. How can your sin be atoned for? It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right? This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so as we come to take communion together today, we come grateful for the blood of Jesus. We come to remember the blood of Jesus. And so if the elders would come forward and we'll prepare uh, to serve you, um, to serve ourselves the bread first and then the cup as a reminder of the reality and the significance of the death of Jesus.